This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, pod fans. Max here. Just a heads up. Uh, there is some offensive and discriminatory language in today's show. Um, here it is. Hello and welcome to Guardian Football Weekly. Today we're doing a special on the experiences of the LGBTQ plus community in all aspects of the game, whether it's as a match-going fan, just watching in the pub, online or playing at grassroots. It's a very simple question. What is it like? And has football shaped the timing or indeed the decision of people to come out at all? Have people's experiences changed over the years? Do campaigns like the Rainbow Laces make a difference? Do we put too much emphasis on players coming out? And how do we balance the good that's being done with the World Cup about to take place in a country where homosexuality is illegal and perhaps most importantly what is the best way of people listening to this help make the game as inclusive as possible we're really grateful that so many of you have contributed your stories to today's pod we're going to use them as a way of discussing the issues that matter most to you this is the guardian football weekly on the panel today uh barry glenn denning hello hi max how you doing i'm very good thank you uh from proud lily white and kick it out chris powros hello hey hey how you doing yeah, very good. Uh, a pod debut for uh, Rishi Madlani from Fox's Pride and Pride in Football. Hey, Rishi. Hey, pleasure to be on. Yeah, you said you, you enjoyed the pod, but now you're sort of seeing behind the scenes. By the end, you might <laughs> have a very different view of things. Um, uh, and Pod Galactico, um, Nikki Bandini, who came out as transgender in 2019. Hey, Nikki. Morning. I guess, I guess I'll probably start on your, your personal experiences. I mean, Chris, we've had you on talking about thing, these things a lot had you on the radio all the talk time talking about these things, but never really asked you about your story. I don't know if that, is that rude of me never to ask you that question or is it just sort of... Not or, at or, all, not no. at all, Max, because you know what, when you've got a few seconds on the radio to talk about a thing, you're not really going to go, oh, right, so tell me your life story. So I'm all right with that. I'm totally all right with that. Well, um, tell me tell me your life story, Chris, here we are. I pop- I won't go. I won't go into too much detail because we will be here all day, obviously, because I'm quite old. But look, I've been a football fan. I've been a Spurs fan all my life, and I loved. I first went to White Hart Lane when I was six, and that feeling of like walking up the steps because you always walk up the steps at White Hart Lane and seeing the grass and all of those people who had the same love for the football team that I had. And just that real feeling of like the collective kind of energy, the collective hope before a game, sometimes the collective despair at the end of it. But, you know, just that thing where you stand up all together as the ball's flying through the air. There's like there's nothing like it. And I've always loved it. However, around the sort of the time of my political awakening, I suppose, and my sort of late teens, early 20s, which and my early 20s when I came out, I slightly fell out of love with the game. Because I kind of like, I was just sort of thinking, what, how does it fit with how I feel? How does football in its current state fit with how I feel about the world? And how do I reconcile those two things? And I found it quite difficult, you know, like, you know, I was like a raging lesbian feminist, you know, and it was just like, it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? However, I'd always um, promised the sort of six-year-old me that six-year-old little girl, that when I grew up and got a job, I'd get a season ticket. So I did. 
And so I got a season ticket in the uh, mid-90s at White Hart Lane. So let me tell you, in those days, I literally went to the ticket office and said, hello, can I have a season ticket? And they said, sure, where would you like to sit? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't mind. I just don't want to sit behind the goal. So for those of you who know White Hart Lane, in the East Stand, and I didn't want to be in the West Stand because those are the posh seats, in the East Stand, there were two big white pillars and for 20 years, I sat about eight year, eight rows behind that and didn't see the, <laughs> no. and I never saw the 18 yard line. I spent the time sort of with my head bobbing from side to side. To be fair, in the 90s, Chris, probably not too bad as a Spurs fan. Well, exactly. Like the, the less you could see, the better, frankly. And, and actually, in that time, I kind of, for me personally, I sort of like, well, this is my house. And so I wasn't, there was no way I was going to kind of, stand for any kind of uh, like abuse discrimination etc but because you, you know what it's like when you've got a season ticket you get to know all the people around you from a season ticket holder perspective you know like it was a lot it was it genuinely was a lovely place to be it was weird because you hung out with people that you wouldn't hang out with ordinarily and sometimes and some of them I didn't know their names and that's weird as well because it's like 15 years later it's a little bit embarrassing to say what was your name again? So, you know, lots of kind of, you know, other ways of, of addressing people. From a sort of an LGBTQ plus fan perspective, the thing I found really difficult was away games. And me and my late wife, we were, I remember, I can't remember where we were. It might have been the Hawthorns in the early 2000s, where we actually sort of had a conversation and said, should we just wear headphones so we don't have to listen to all of this? Um, and that was from our fans, as well as whatever abuse we were getting from the opposition, you know, from the opposition. And that was all sorts, but, you know, including, you know, homophobia. So, you know, but I mean, that's, to be honest, you know, that's why we started the Proud Lilywhites. Because actually we would, I was just like, look, football's for us too. And if there are, if there are, people out there LGBTQ plus fans who you know think about how I described that feeling of being a football fan at the at the beginning you don't want to deny that to anybody and so people who have got the opportunity to go to a live football match you know the the thought of not going because you're fearful or worried about the experience that you might have etc like that's no place for for football no way for football to operate so um you know that's one of the reasons why we we set up the proud little whites so chris was the abuse you were hearing just general homophobic abuse or was being directed specifically at you both so stuff that you get either you know stuff at that's aimed at footballers and actually the interesting thing about that of course is that it's it's actually about gender not about sexual orientation the stuff that gets leveled at footballers because if football is for men then it's for real men, not those who don't fit some macho stereotypes. And that's why it becomes hard for women too. Um, and it's complicated as a lesbian because you can be one of the lads. <laughs> but if it means enabling misogyny or being exclusionary, I'm not up for it. But also, you know, like if you're a fat old dyke, excuse my language, uh, quoting some of the uh, things I might have heard in the past, then actually you get a little bit of that as well. Rishi, what's uh, I wonder what your experiences were growing up and sort of how football affected coming out and and the link between your sexuality and the game. Absolutely, and happy to um, happy to go into that. So my my family are all East African Asians. So in the seventies, um, the Indians were thrown out by Idi Amin, and a large chunk of the Indian community settled in Leicester. So my family were always split between London and Leicester, and Leicester has always been sort of a home we spent our summers there and I, I always count myself lucky because um, some of my cousins end up being supporting small teams like Liverpool Manchester United that I've never really heard of <laughs> and luckily for me I got taken along by my cousins who were partly less into football actually and that was why they were Leicester City fans <laughs> uh, because back then it wasn't particularly great and they took me along to my first game and as someone who spent a lot of time there felt very much at home uh, for those of you who don't know it, Leicester's an ethnic majority city. It's uh, a very large Indian, uh, South Asian, uh, uh, but now very mixed um, population there. But it's very integrated to the point where, you know, the little old lady next to me will ask me for 
specific Indian recipes that I could never cook or never try and cook. And when I think of this little <laughs> white lady cooking tokra at home or something that I would never even dream of trying to cook, when my mother has sent her recipe immediately, I was like, she's like, this is urgent. I need to make sure this lady can make this. So um, it's been part of that community piece for me. Football's always been an escape for me. Um, I have a very annoyingly busy job in climate change because it's uh, not being solved anytime soon and uh, a bit of uh, uh, dabbling in politics as a local councillor. So, you know, football is meant to be my escape from the madness. And unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not one of these people who can stand by and watch things that are not perfect or not good, you know, and we will stand up. And um, I first met Chris at a Stonewall Leadership Programme. Come up to a decade ago, Chris, it's kind of terrifying. And she set up Proud Lily Whites. And I was sort of like, hang on, if Spurs can do this, we can do this too. So uh, connected up with uh, other Leicester fans. And you know, given I'm here as both Pride in Football and Sports Pride, there were, there were five, six groups that all formed around the same time, about 2013. Nine years later, I can't believe it. You know, the proliferation, we've got now over 50 groups, two new groups formed last week alone. Uh, Leighton Orient, Akron Stanley, welcome and warm welcome to them. If you're fans and, or allies, please join them. And our movement has grown and grown. Now, the boy who used to go along, sometimes away games by myself as a te- young teenager, as the one brown away fan, as well as gay, <laughs> stood, in the, stood in the stands, could not ever believe where we are now today, where in the East Stand, I'm surrounded by Fox Pride members, allies, you know, the, the season ticket holders around me, not only are like pay passing interest they want to take our badges they've got they wear fox's pride uh, merchandise their children wear fox's pride merchandise because they really want to support and show their support and i can't even i, I pinch myself i pinch myself for how much we've changed now it's not all perfect and i think that's why we're having this pod today and this discussion today and um, there are still problems but actually we've also got to recognize how far we've come and i almost can't believe how far we've come sometimes um and but at the same time very aware of how much further we have to go nikki i I wonder if if being a football fan and working in football meant it it took you longer to come out than perhaps it would have done yeah no of course it did of course it did um I, i think um absolutely uh for me when i was wrestling with um you know, and by the way, it's it's kind of when it comes to work, it's it's the public part of coming out because sorry to to break it to everyone here, but I might have told some people in my private life before <laughs> I um was talking about that publicly. And and yeah, of course it did. It made things um much more difficult. Um I think for a long time I thought that that it was not possible with the, the work that I do. I, I think I sincerely thought about changing career before coming out I, I was that was something I thought about is whether or not I'd have to just try and find a different career to move into and, and and then that might be more possible make a fresh start in some way I really struggled for finding um role models within um football for for the journey that I was on um you know I think once I came out I maybe even learned of a few people who I didn't know about before who might have been good role models funnily enough there were some people sort of not doing exactly what I was doing but who have, have tried different paths. There are other journalists in, in, in different sports in different countries who, who have um, tried a, a similar path. But, you know, there have also been some examples of people who, gosh, this is, uh, we're going straight into some heavy stuff. But, that, you know, there was one journalist in, in the United States, Christine Daniels, who, who came out and and transitioned very publicly. And, and um, you know, I, I don't know Christine. It's, it's before... I have had a chance to meet them and I, I don't want to speak of their story because I don't I don't know the truth and ins out of their stories, but I know that they took their own life. And that was something that just being honest about how it affected me personally was very, very heavy. You know, that was something that I thought, gosh, that's only reaffirming in my head. And again, I feel quite disrespectful talking about it because it's, it's, I don't know if that's what um, had anything to do with that in, in, in the pressures they were under. But how you read a story, how you hear it, how you feel it personally and, and on my end reaffirmed the worst things I thought that, that, you know, that this was not a world that you could step into and and be out in. And yes, um, it's not an easy question to come straight in on that, because to be honest, but yes, it was a very hard one. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm sort of really aware that they're very sensitive issues. And like, if you if I ask anything that mm-hmm. is sort of stupid, I mean, I obviously ask lots of stupid questions, you know that already, Nikki, but but like, if I ask anything that isn't sort of appropriate, just, just, just do say, because I've been really conscious that you haven't really talked about it I haven't really, you know, you wrote that article, obviously, when you came out, you did the video, but then it was kind of right. I just want to, you know, I write about football. I talk about football. The rest of it should be irrelevant. 
I mean, obviously, that's a really conscious decision that you have made. Almost the point where I was slightly nervous about asking you to do this pod, you know? You were very respectful about it, Max. Actually, I have to say, I think, um, you know, the vast majority of people that I work with, um, not all, but the vast majority of people I work with have been, and I think certainly you have been, um, everyone um, on Football Weekly has been. I was very deliberate when I came out that I was going to tell my story in that article that I wrote. And I came on Football Weekly and said, uh, spoke about it for a few minutes. And I did a very short video, um, which I now hate looking back on because I think I look exhausted and smashed in like a broken way, not in a drunk way, in like a in like a you know, broken way. And I probably because that's how I was, to be honest. Um, honestly, this is so difficult to talk about because I, I can't talk about it without framing it in the way that I already have. Like I, I was really sort of weighed on by um by the things that I'd sort of been living with in my head and this sort of um feeling I had from from learning about Christine's story was this was someone who was under extraordinary pressure. This was someone who was under sort of such an intense spotlight the whole time. And I, I didn't want that. You know, I turned down so many interview requests in the days after I, I came out. Um, and that was very deliberate. Um, I, I, you know, I, I felt like I wanted to protect myself, and I also felt like, I mean, there was another part to it as well, which was, I felt like I didn't have more things to say. I, I felt like, as soon as you sort of um, make that sort of very public step, I guess, people suddenly think that you're an authority on all things trans and an authority on what it means to be a transgender woman working in sport. And the fact is at that moment in time, I, I, I hadn't worked in sport in an out way. I hadn't dealt with that part of my, my journey at all. So I didn't have anything else to say. What else could I have said at that point that would have been relevant? Um, so I, I thought the best thing to do was to button my lip and to look after myself. And, and that's what I did for a couple of years. And I, and I honestly do feel not that I'm suddenly going to make this sort of 180 on it but like I do feel like maybe now I'm able to say things more because I've lived more life since then you know it is three years since I um since I made um that uh decision and wrote that article and um decisions are horrible way of framing that there was no decision made at the point when I got to it was an inevitability that you sort of had to confront one way or the other three years have passed I have more life experience I have more things I can say so I'm in a very different place now anyway to where I was when I wrote the article Mm. It's great to hear. Uh, and and have you? Did you feel like I remember you sort of emailed us, like a, I presume sort of big selection of people you work with, to say this news, and it must have been incredibly stressful to sort of press send on that email. And I wonder if were you surprised either way on how it was received, like straight away, and and and, and over the last three years. Yeah, I mean, I was certainly surprised by some of the initial reaction. Not not. God, there's, there's so many layers to the reaction to it, right? Because, you know, the very first people I spoke to within journalism were my immediate editors, right? So uh, you won't mind me naming names, but at The Guardian, the first person I spoke to was Marcus Christensen. And Marcus Christensen is a, a lovely editor, a lovely person, a great human being. You know, it was an, uh, a virtual communication at first, but I felt like, you know, a, a virtual arm around me looking after me and not no worries from him at all. Like I felt like I was supported very, 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 very well by Marcus. And, and immediately the conversation was, how do you want to do this? How do you want to, 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 to talk about this? I felt like, yeah, the, the, the vast majority of responses I got from colleagues um, were, were really warm positive. Not all, <laughs> to be totally truthful with you, not all, but the vast majority. And then the public part of it um, was, uh, was astonishing. I mean, I I have a, a very good friend who came and looked after me the day that everything went public. I um uh, yeah, a friend from school came and took my phone off me basically, and we like went down and sat. I think it's very common knowledge now on the podcast. I'm not revealing anything. I live in Brighton, and we went and sat on the beach in Brighton, and and uh, I wasn't allowed to look at it for a long time. And then of course, when I looked at it. There was. God knows how many thousands of, of responses and um, some surprisingly famous people who I'm sure have immediately forgotten who I am and don't know who I am who had responded to it. Um, but most of it, you know, really the overwhelming amount of that public response that I saw anyway was was positive. I didn't see much negativity at all in them. I can't even fathom that, to be honest with you, because there's all sorts of negativity on the internet when it comes to, to LGBTQ um, plus people. That's not... Um, any secret and um i've seen plenty of it in time since but on the day i have to say maybe the algorithms just played a trick on me but i felt like i saw much more positive than than not well it's great to hear your stories 
I'm sort of delighted, Nikki, that you're sort of happy to 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 talk about it, and and it's it's great to hear how positive it has been. We're gonna um, move on to part two, where we're gonna hear from uh, lots of listeners who've got involved and got in touch about lots of parts of how the LGBTQ plus community experience football at the moment. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, uh, we are still on tour. Yeah, we are. Uh, it, it never it never ends. I never stop tweeting about it until we fill the Hackney Empire. Um, Nikki, you're coming to Hackney Empire on the 8th of July, uh, along with Troy Townsend, uh, Jonathan Wilson, me and Barry uh, on Saturday. Uh, Ellis James, Barney Ronay and Sid Lowe join me and Baz and Philippe O'Claire and Jonathan Wilson uh, will be with us in Glasgow on the 13th of July. Um, there is merch available I didn't design the half and half Rushton Glendening scarf, but you can buy it. Uh, a David Squires t-shirts and mugs, which are brilliant. Uh, go to myticket.co.uk and we are going to live stream the Saturday show on, from the Hackney Empire. So uh, yeah, that one with uh, Ellis, Barney and Sid. It's available for a week afterwards. So a bit like the live online shows we did during lockdown. Uh, go to the same place, myticket.co.uk. It is... Uh, cheaper but if you live in and around hackney no excuses you can't just stay at home you have to come and watch it we had loads of people get in touch about their experiences the most common ones were actually about like chanting that people hear actually amateur football and and what they hear on the pitch in amateur football Uh, i'm going to read a couple of examples some of the language isn't pleasant but isn't something that a match going fan won't have heard I'm, i'm sure of it tony said As a closeted gay man fighting with my sexuality in the early 2000s, the patterns of behaviour in football matches and from family and friends around me definitely attributed to me taking longer to come to terms with my sexuality and the issues that followed, PTSD of burying true feelings uh, in for so long, etc. Being closeted and young at football matches is a strange experience as you're denying your true self and getting it validated by the language and actions you see around you. The pressures to act straight and blend in were were constant stress. But only something I realised on self-reflection once I stopped going to football matches and came to terms with my sexuality. The macho culture of football means you hear discrimination in the all forms in most matches you go to. This could be just small comments, a inverted commas, harmless joke, or something bigger and more threatening to any vulnerable groups. The people I went to the matches with are some of the most lovely, down-to-earth, selfless people you could meet. But their lack of experience with more diverse groups tends to ensure that anything beyond their own social group and perspective is hard to understand. Andy wrote, I grew up as a Man City fan. I now manage the Millwall Pride LGBT team. One of the most awkward experiences of my life was thousands of City fans chanting, O'Shea takes it up the arse at Old Trafford while I was stood next to my dad. 2-1 win that day. Thank you, Benjani. He says, I had come out a few weeks earlier. I didn't know how to react, so I just tried to laugh about it while internally feeling very conflicted. Um, We've talked about fan behaviour in grounds a lot on Football Weekly. Um, I wonder... Have you noticed a change, Chris? I think it's it's hard to say because uh, talking about sort of the trajectory of sort of more LGBTQ plus fan activism, because I think the last season, you know, since the um, stadium were closed for lockdown has resulted in some really kind of some some kind of like fan behavior in inverted commas. Behavior sounds weird because it sounds like we're talking about kids, right? Um that's been quite full on 
I don't know if it's people are more angry, like really excited about being back at football just because of, you know, the sort of the political climate, you know, with more, you know, more populism or whatever. And that's the one place you get to, you know, because I think I think the thing about football fans is that what you've got is you've got sort of lots of lots of fans who have been there a long time um and then and you know sort of that that could be the outlet but you've also got loads of fans who have who are just you know who have got opportunities to go to games so like at Spurs we've got a much bigger stadium now so you've got a much more diverse fan base in terms of gender ethnicity and I'm assuming um sexual orientation and gender identity but you don't like you don't know right um, and the thing, but the thing I'm really proud of to build on something that Rishi said earlier is, you know, we've got that massive rainbow flag up in the corner at the um, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And I can't tell you how many messages we get from people saying, I didn't, you know, I used to be a Spurs fan when I was a kid, but I kind of got a ticket and came to a game because I saw your flag or have joined the Proud Lily Whites and have met up with others and have come back to football in a, in a much more kind of active match going way because the Proudly Whites exists, you know, and, and, and I talk about fan activism, you know, we, we talked about it on the pod already in terms of the CPS changing the, um, how they deal with a certain chant that gets levelled um, often when Chelsea are playing or Chelsea loanees are playing. And, you know, Lee, who's my co-chair, again, I think we've talked about this before, he went, he left football, he didn't go to football for six years because of that chant. He missed um, saying goodbye to White Hart Lane. You know, and that's something he really holds in him because as a football fan, that stuff matters to us, right? It matters like you've got this kind of grand old stadium that's been there for like more than 100 years and you miss it because of because of homophobia you know and his back has got a, a season ticket now but that's why what we're doing is is really important and are things worse now I mean I, I you know these things go in ups and downs anyway and I don't you know we can't necessarily separate it from a, a wider context Rishi what um what should fans do I I I, I think it's such a I speak as someone who I I don't think right when I was 10 like the, calling someone gay was definitely I definitely did it right I can't say I didn't do it when I was 10 and meant it in a you know a, a derogatory way or you know like who's gay at school those kind of things I don't think I sang it at football but I really might have done and I, I'm absolutely certain I never did said or sang anything racist right and I and I don't know if that's just because I don't know I think casual homophobia is still much more acceptable than than casual racism is and I certainly would like to think of myself as an ally so I I I don't know if that's a just an admission I wanted to make or just you know it's I can't just sit here and say oh I never I've never called anyone gay when I was 15 uh, you know as some kind of saint but like now what should what should fans do to help because it's quite hard to call it out it is it's a hard thing to do it's all about education and awareness. And I think the day when we have when we have racism put on the same footing as the LGBT phobia that we hear in stadiums and, and misogyny that we hear um, put on the same footing and people actually calling out in the same way. If you heard someone, and, and unfortunately at Leicester, we used to get certain towns, uh, certain clubs come and chant the P word, about town full of the P word at Leicester until last decade, you know, just only, only 15, 16 years ago, it still used to happen. Now, now you know that anyone around you in a football stadium mostly would call it out. We still saw some horrific racism after after the after England's exit, um, after England losing the final last year. We've seen some of that re reemerge. But actually, if you heard people chanting racist things, most people would call it out, and you know that. Now, what we want to do is get to the point where people would do the same and have that same value value. And I sort of realised that because in the 70s and 80s, you know, terms would have been used that were racist, that were perfectly part of society. So our job is not just to hector and lecture on, with people, but to bring people with us on this journey. And, you know, ultimately, you know, Chris's story about, um, you know, when, when people, your question about, to Chris about when people see you, ultimately we just remind them that we're as much foot, mad football fans, you know, as crazy about Leicester City or Spurs or whoever as it, as it may be, as them and ultimately that always brings you back to the same level because once they realize that you're spend waste too much of your income <laughs> spend too much of your time following a football team around last year around europe but around the country they sort of realize actually you're just the same as them and that's the point we need to get people fans to but language will always change um and will continue to change you know there'll be things that we say now 
around the trans community that we, you know, we, even language around that has changed so much. And it's a constant education. But I think the, the fact for me that's so important is people come to it with good intent. And I'm not going to call out someone who used bad language 15, 20 years ago if they didn't do it intentionally. And it's always hard. Intent's always hard to tell. But actually, you know, Max, I'm not going to call you out and cancel you because obviously that's not what you were, what, what, what your intent was. But actually the, the mission of that helps us move on. And we also, we don't campaign unless we think that change is possible. Like we wouldn't be having, even having this conversation if we didn't think that some change was possible. I'm very certain that as a teenager, I, I use words in that way as well. Um, being blunt about it, you know, even sort of I can look back and, and say that everyone does things as a teenager that they're mortified by and, and that they don't think about at the time and and that, you know, definitely. Um, and um, I think, uh, gosh, I was reading an interview uh, recently with Josh Cavallo and he was talking about um, uh, a, a teammate in the, in the changing room using the word gay in a, in a way that sort of was offhand. I don't think it was aggressively like offensive and then suddenly sort of going completely silent and panicking because he was worried and Josh saying like, you know, I'm still a human being. We can still laugh. Like, and, and, and I think that intent matters a lot. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to say to people it's not helpful because it isn't helpful. It isn't helpful that teenagers would use that language even because then that means there's teenagers in that space who are feeling uncomfortable, who are, um, who are um, struggling to, to come out more because they're hearing that language. It doesn't mean we shouldn't speak about it and say, hey, this isn't good. Um, but we don't need to put ourselves um, through the ringer every time for something we did as teenagers. That's not how it works. You know, you need to try and manage your behaviour in the future. Manage behaviour, that's a horrible way of putting it because, again, I don't like using that sort of language because I think as soon as anyone feels that they're sort of having to tread on you know, on, on tiptoes, that's that's not what you want either. It's just about thinking about why you use language and, and being more conscious about um, about the impact that words can have. I had a message from David said, look, nothing directed at me, but um, on one occasion, a man stood up in front to abuse a linesman and said, you're a, um, and then a derogatory term for, for a, a gay person. It happened after a decision had gone against us. Fans had shouted their disapproval. A second or two after the main hubbub after the decision, he stood up and shouted towards the official. Other occasions have included players being called homophobic slurs for staying down after a challenge or for wearing pink boots. There was an incident away at Arsenal once where homophobic hand gestures were being made between opposition fans, each suggesting the other was gay. I think there's probably been at least one report I've made each season to kick it out about something homophobic or transphobic. And I wonder, Chris, with the, you know, with chanting, are the processes in place? Do they work? I.e., you can challenge someone face to face. There are risks with challenging anyone face to face. You can report it to a steward. You can report it to kick it out or to the police. Do you think the system works at the moment? I think probably the short answer is maybe, but mostly not. Because I think one of the examples I always use is something that Rishi told me, which I'll let him talk to you about, which was like a real-time action um, in in his stadium. I think like more generally with discrimination, I think the problem is, or discrimination or abuse is as fans, I don't we none of us want to spend half an hour of a 90-minute match that um, talking to the police or the stewards. And that's what's going to happen if you want it, if you need to do it properly, right? And so that's problematic. Um, having said that, you know, reporting it via the text line, which every club's got, and kick it out so that we have sort of aggregated, um, so we can have some numbers and understand what the issues are and what we're dealing with, I think is really, really important. Um, because you could do it, you know, kick it out, you can do it after the event. And, and also it's difficult, you know, as a season ticket holder, you, you know, if, if people, if someone that sits there all the time and then you report them, it's like you could actually make things difficult or more dangerous for yourself. So you've got to make sure that you kind of keep yourself safe. Um, but sort of anonymous reporting via um, ticket lines or, sorry, the, the uh, text line or kick it out, I think is is really, really important. With mass chanting, I mean, that's again, I think that's about trying to sort of change to change cultures so the mass chanting just doesn't happen. Um, but you'll know that um, a Spurs fan actually got charged and fined for using the chant we talked about against Chelsea. And, you know, I imagine that he was amongst many, was made an example of. And, you know, I'm not up for criminalising people, but I do think it's important to say, actually, this is against the law. 
because and that's you know I think the culture change doesn't come with law it comes with culture change but actually having the law underpinning it will does help so I think there's loads of different things there about yes report it via kick it out because then we know what really are the, the issues are that are happening in stadia so we can figure out how to tackle them um and you know some kind of concerted effort across the board, whether it's from LGBTQ plus fan groups in conjunction with their clubs to try and make that change around saying that chant is a homophobic chant that is not acceptable in football stadia. Uh, Rishi, what's the, what's the story that Chris was alluding to? Um, so it was, it was a kick it out focus weekend, actually. And I, I was actually in another, another fan, another club's ground. And as a result of that, the kick it out app, and the numbers were be- better ma- uh, better staffed than usual. So it actually meant the report I made real-time at ho- the first half got acted on the second half, and the a steward came and had a, a, had a word with a young lad who'd been using, quite frankly, racist language in that incident. Um, um, I, I think that's the one that Chris is referring to. And it happened that at that time, and it wasn't actually painful for me because I did it on the app really quickly. I'm, you know, I can't tweet during games. I'm used to splurging out nonsense as, as most of us are and it was one of those things where it was really quick to see however and this is why Pride and Football gave evidence in the Tracy Crouch um, family review on this the data from clubs the police and kick it out does not come to one place we don't actually have accurate numbers on this we get directional trends and kick it out do a great job in giving us directional trends but we don't have there's no real coordination on this and a football regulator really does need to grasp this so we actually have that right data and then can respond to the specific types and the specific challenges around it. Um, the bit that Chris was referring to about um, sort of restorative justice, I know Kick Out and Pride of Irons have done a, a pilot where it's about talking and meeting fans. And we've done something similar at Box Pride and, and Leicester, where you talk to the fans because nine times out of 10, you know, it's the odd Neanderthal who's just never going to turn and they are going to be a bigot and they can quite frankly bugger off from football. Whereas the majority of fans will want, you know, once they realise, most people are mortified. And especially, actually, that's partly a societal shift we've had in the last 20 years where elderly people are more visible. I mean, part of the reason I, I go to football for escapism, I don't necessarily want to be doing LGBT stuff every game. I'd love to be as boring a fan sat at the back of the East Stand to say hello if you are ever, um, you know, just watching the game, shouting at Nacho for missing another great chance. Um, and rather than like doing this, but we're so far from that. And that's where we need to get to. And whether it's flash moments like um, crowd, you know, chance to come up or individual moments what I really want is allies and others to pick it up because it's exhausting I literally want to go and watch football and relax and see my friends and have fun can I ask actually when you were the three you were invited on this podcast what if anything did you think it would achieve because I like to think our audience are quite an enlightened bunch so it's going to be kind of an echo chamber but there will probably be a proportion of eye rollers who will say we're just taking a box and being woke and not really you know might just fast forward through it or wait for the next one um so yeah what what are you hoping to achieve or what are we hoping to achieve indeed so happy to go first on this one because for, for me prime football you know we've got 50 odd fan groups the magic number is obviously 92 obviously it doesn't quite add up that way because scotch clubs and uh, we include the national associations but actually, I want every fan, every club to have a group. So if your fan, if your club doesn't have one yet, why don't you ask your club about it? Some of them start fan-led, some of them start red-led by the club. So that would be step one. Step two is just normalisation. And like, as I say, I want to be as boring as any other football fan. And when I first met Nikki and I, in person a couple of years ago, I think it was back, back pre-pandemic. And the work, Nikki, just by being Nikki, she inspired me to do work with our trans fans just to normalise and celebrate trans fans. So last year, um, two years ago, sorry, Leicester City, just focused on celebrating our trans fans just to make it as usual as possible that a trans person could be at the football. We have three three of our, our members who have been featured in that. And if every one of us takes a little bit of this and does a small action, we make football more inclusive for all. And that's why I wanted to be on today. Yeah, 100%. I think for all the reasons that Rishi's just said, it's like, normalising the fact that they're LGBTQ plus people, whether they're in football, whether we're working in football like Nikki is or fans like we are. Um, and also just like having these conversations, because, you know, there's a couple of times when I've I've just chatted with you, whether it's on the radio or here, Max, and I've had messages from people going, oh, thanks for that. I'd never thought about it like that before. And that's it. You know, I think because 
Yes, Baz, we are in an echo chamber, but I think the thing is, is that, you know, what the experiences for us as LGBTQ plus fans or people that just kind of talk about this stuff all the time is kind of a bit different and potentially more nuanced than your average straight or cisgendered fan. And that's not a criticism. It's just that like, they might not hear from the likes of us um, very often. And I think that's the point. It's like football is for all of us. There might be people out there that are struggling um, that don't necessarily get to like love football as much as the rest of us. And if we can do some stuff to make that better um, and you can really be part of it, then I'm really up for that. I think this is really hard to understand if these are not things that you've ever dealt with in your life without wanting to sort of make anyone feel bad for that because you shouldn't feel bad for things you haven't experienced in your life. Everyone's got their own life experience they're on. But when you are... Um, LGBT and you I have got reasons to think that places might not be welcoming because we've just talked about some of those reasons chants do happen people do say things at stadiums that are um offensive those sorts of visual acknowledgements that you're welcome can be really important like those those visual signs that actually know you know you're not alone here they really matter like I, I think because of course it's it's the end of June, which is is Pride Month, and I think there are lots of people who see companies and corporations switching their logos to rainbows and roll their eyes. And listen, no one rolls their eyes at that more than LGBTQ plus people. No one rolls their eyes more than us. But at the same time, sometimes those visual symbols are really important to someone. Sometimes those visual symbols actually are the difference for someone between walking in somewhere and not. Is is seeing that and thinking, you know what, like, actually, I'm not going to get unsupported here. Like, you, you, know, you can't ever guarantee you're not going to get abused somewhere. I've been abused on my own street before. Like, but you you know, you've got people who, at least there's like an acknowledgement, there's going to be people there who are on your side. And I think especially with the fan groups, because that's not actually corporate, it's other fans saying, hey, you're welcome here. It's It's really important. All right, that'll do for part two. We'll be back in one second. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. I'm really pleased to say that during the Euros, we are launching the Guardian Women's Football Weekly, uh, which will come out three times a week. Uh, Holy Faker Others is your host. Uh, she'll be joined on the first episode on Monday by Robin Cowan, Susie Rack and Johnny Liu. Uh, they'll be going throughout the Euros. We'll, of course, be covering it on Football Weekly as well. But... You can go to wherever you get your podcasts and listen to The Guardian Women's Football Weekly as well as Football Weekly. And that is brilliant news and uh, not before time. So delighted that that is happening. Back to today's pod on the experiences of the LGBTQ plus uh, community in all aspects of the game. And I want to talk about amateur football because we had loads of messages um, about people's experiences uh, on Sunday League pitches. Callum says, I was outed at school. I still played in a local five-a-side league. I remember playing other teams with players from my school and would semi-regularly get called gay or see pointing and sniggering about me, which hurt, but was also a huge motivator. Now for an LGBT-friendly team in London, it doesn't seem things have moved on as our first team gets insults thrown at them multiple times a season by, inverted commas, straight teams. Um, Liam says, we regularly receive homophobic abuse in our Sunday league. I've also experienced it when playing six-a-side at leisure leagues. We always report it both to our Sunday league and to leisure leagues, but the response is always disappointing. And Tom says, while I was released from Luton Town simply for not being good enough, I felt I was forced to quit playing football altogether a number of years later as I was homophobically abused in a Sunday league game. I've experienced homophobia in the stands, in the away end at Northampton Town, where fellow Argyle fans were throwing slurs based on the away keeper's pink-coloured kit. The Sunday league game was what I would class as psychological abuse. Opposition players who knew I was gay would take it in turns to whisper crude and offensive things in my ear out of earshots of everyone else e.g. would you sleep with any of your teammates then, um, etc. And other similar things. It was a dreadful feeling. I decided after that that I wouldn't put myself through it again for the sake of Sunday morning football. It, it feels, you know, it's less policed, right, Sunday league football, Chris, than, than when you're actually at a stadium. You know, there aren't stewards, there aren't police, you know, there isn't a big flag saying you're welcome here. I, I, and I wonder, you know, like we said before, it's, it's not just football, it's society changing that is that is it more important for allies there to call it out on the pitch more so than in the ground not that it has to be a competition I, I think that yeah I think let's not make it a competition but it is really important and I think the teammates of 
you know the teammates of that of that gay player you know whether if it's a if it's an lgbtq plus team you know it's hard i I used to run back in the early 2000s i used to run a lesbian women's football team and you know we came out of a game once and our cars had all been scratched um you know we had like stuff like um you know, we used to play in it's Hackney Women's Football Club. We used to play in Hackney Marshes. You know, it was a famous lesbian football team. And, you know, people would, like, write things in the changing rooms and stuff. And it's really hard. But then on the other hand, you go, like, but look, to be fair, that doesn't happen to them now. You know, I think that's the other thing is that it doesn't happen to them now. And actually, even in those days, you'd often get people coming up, you know, players from other teams coming up and going, thanks so much for what you're doing. But like, obviously not being out in those in their teams. Now, look, we are talking about 20 years ago. It doesn't happen to them now. You know, they're more celebrated and lauded now, I guess, by most. Although sometimes you do get parents, you know, because it's weird, the women's game, right? Like, particularly at kind of grassroots level. You know, this is a bunch of like 20 to 40-year-old um, lesbians playing sometimes against 16 and 17-year-olds whose parents are on the sidelines, you know, kind of might having potentially different sort of approaches and i think i think what's more what's also challenging um in the grassroots game is that we've got a refereeing crisis um you know so how many times have we all played in a in a regulated um sunday league game where you know i've had to run the line or you've had to get somebody literally a passerby who's walking their dog and said would you mind holding this uh, bib and just like you know calling the ins and outs of the of the of the throw-ins or whatever um, and then also, you know, because there's a referee in crisis, have the referees been trained properly? What happens if you report something to the referee at a grassroots game? Does the referee really know what they're supposed to do? Does the referee understand what LGBTQ plus phobia and what those slurs are? You know, what's going to happen afterwards? It ends up in a in some kind of a tribunal, again, potentially from people that don't know, you know. So there's a systemic thing here that we have to have to unpick. But then equally, you, what you've got is our national game and wonderfully, you know, tens of thousands of people playing every weekend. And so that's why we come back to that stuff around culture change, which is, you know, all of these things that we're doing here and why, even though if something like Rainbow Laces feels like gesturing, you know, which it which it could do. There is something about having the the you know the amounts of the millions of people who are watching the Premier League from all over the world and all over the country, as well as the hundreds of thousands in the football stadium that weekend. Of what a difference that will make as being part of that culture change. I, I think there's something else about that as well. If I can just jump in, like I, I think it's really interesting with Rainbow Laces. Like I think as a result of Rainbow Laces, several top professional men's footballers have then ended up having conversations publicly about their support, basically. You know, I've heard um, Rio Ferdinand, Jordan Henderson, like a bunch of players talk very publicly about why inclusion matters and why it sort of is personal to them as well. And I don't think those things happen without the campaign. Like, I just don't think those conversations start. So, you know, again, you know, sometimes I'm certain... Well, I think Rishi and Chris agree with me anyway. You know, sometimes I look at you like, oh, God, there's a defence contractor on Twitter with its rainbow flag. <laughs> Great. You know, like, but actually, like, in, in football, I, I think it's been really important. Like, you talked about Josh Cavallo, um, you know, plays in the A-League uh, and who came out. And then Jake Daniels obviously came out recently in the UK. I always wonder, Rishi, if we just, you know, like, it's... It's still rare, so it becomes a news story, and then everybody gets sort of incredibly excited about it, and I feel there's so much weight put on it. But I wonder, is it similar to like the Rainbow Laces campaign? It does actually matter, even if even if it's frustrating and it shouldn't matter, that it actually still does matter. That 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 now players, current players, are feeling comfortable enough to to come out. Yeah, the Rainbow Laces campaign has been. It's amazing watching it evolve and develop i mean both chris and i will be cynical about it at various stages i mean given its founding and where it originally even came from we know that there was you know there's been aspects of it. however i can't we can't deny it's made a difference because getting all the premier league clubs and now increasingly all football league clubs to do stuff around those certain days and we still don't know when they're going to be this year because the qatar world cups are in the in the middle of the, when remolaces normally would be but it's, it all adds to that climate so you're not going to change stuff at grassroots football unless you change at, at top level football. And the fact that Jake was 30 years since the last male footballer came out and then that ended so tragically and it still moves me to think about that. Like 
he Jake was phenomenal for a 17 year old incredible what authenticity if, if anyone any listener has not heard the interview please if you, where have you been hiding under a rock but please do because it's just incredible to hear a young man speak like that who hopefully will encourage others and that's where we need to get to but we need to change that culture first so we've talked about the fans uh, of the sort of you know booing and the, the things at the grounds and all these things will, will slowly ladder up it was, we will get there but I think these campaigns are still essential for now because otherwise it wouldn't get talked about. It just, you know, it'd just be another silent thing. You mentioned Qatar. Um, homosexuality is illegal there. Um, uh, it's obviously hosting the World Cup, as you say, during the month when the Rainbow Laces campaign would be. You sort of feel they should just do it then, anyway. You know, the England players should be wearing rainbow laces for sure. I just wonder how, like personally, Chris, how how we. Are you going to watch? I don't know how massive an England fan you are. But maybe that's not the point. You must love the World Cup. Who doesn't love the World Cup? Like, how do you feel about it happening there? It actually hurt. It pains me. It pains me to have seen the last World Cup in Russia, and now and and you know and now look, frankly, um, and to see it to see it in Qatar, and you know I think what's really important is that we don't get we don't get kind of caught up in Islamophobia, right? And, I, you know, I've, I've spoken to several um, LGBTQ plus campaigners from the Middle East, um, you know, who talk about the fact that this isn't about, this is about an oppress- oppressive regime, not about Islam, you know. And look, we know we're not perfect here. We've got this conversion therapy ban that doesn't include trans people, which is like unacceptable. We've got so, you know, all the stuff that we see that happens on social media. We've seen increases in hate crime, but we are going to um, hold a World Cup and celebrate the festival of football in a place where the LGBTQ plus community live in fear of their lives, where they're often, where they can be entrapped by the state, where the state, you know, where we have oppression of, you know, we have oppression of women. We've seen what's happened with with workers' rights. And, you know, it's not about saying, oh, can I hold hands with my partner if I'm LGBTQ plus and I go there and, and someone says, well, you know, it's not, you know, even if you're heterosexual, you know, public displays of affection are, are not cultural norms. That's totally fine. It's not about me trying to go and hold hands with, with somebody. But like... Have we, you know, we've got this Qatar um, working group um, that kick it out, actually. I'll tell you a little bit about that. It includes people from Stonewall, the FSA, Football versus Homophobia, Sports Media, LGBT, Inkside Inclusion. And we came up with three objectives. One is a safe and inclusive World Cup for LGBTQ plus fans and anyone who's working at the tournament. You know, we saw Magda Eriksson talked at the back end of last year, I think, saying she wouldn't feel safe going as a lesbian woman. Um, but she wanted to sort of speak out for those who have got no voice, whether they're the workers or the LGBTQ plus community. The second objective we have is a positive legacy for LGBTQ plus Qataris, whatever that looks like. And I think the point that you're making there is, is like, what can we do? It's like, will I watch the World Cup? Yes, probably. Will I go to because w- will I go to the World Cup? No. But, you know, if you listen to, you know, there's one out LGBTQ plus Qatari, and I urge you all to follow him on social media. Dr. Nas Mohammed came out recently. It was a big story on the BBC. There have been stories about him with his, you know, including his story in Germany and Denmark recently. He's taken, um, a, he's uh, sought asylum in the United States, which is where he is now. And, you know, he talks about his experience. And, and the thing that he says is, look, talk about it. Talk about what's happening to LGBTQ plus Qataris. You know, Harry Kane used the words about shining a light on those on those stories. And it's really important because that's the one thing that we can do, right? Is to say, actually, there are some stories here and we can have open that conversation about what's going on in Qatar along on all of those things, you know, potentially in the region, but also here. Because I think that's the thing is like, I don't want to, I don't want us to sort of enable um Islamophobia or some kind of like that sort of sort of small that sort of small minded like doesn't happen here because you know what stuff does um and then the third thing in this working group is is creating some kind of an LGBTQ plus voice within sports leadership to inform key decisions around future events 
And another thing that Magda Eriksson talked about was better transparency from FIFA. Um, good good luck with that. Good luck with that. I know, I know, right? <laughs> but like, this is the thing. We don't want to see this again. I really don't want to be having this conversation again. Uh, uh, Nikki, have you? I mean, I know Italy haven't qualified, which might sort of dent the amount of work you'd be asked to do for this World Cup. But like, have you? Did you? Has it affected how you think you will cover it, or what work you will do on it? I, I mean, certainly Italy not qualifying has simplified certain things because I, I wasn't sure. Like if Italy qualify and they're going there as European champions, am I trying to get out there? Like, am I trying to cover the tournament um, from Qatar? What Literally, what does that look like, right? Because I, I, I was seeking some of these answers out and I never had a satisfactory answer to it so far, which seems to have been the default response that I've heard. The default response that I've heard to, oh, is it safe for LGBTQ plus um, fans to travel to Qatar is, well, look, it's a very reserved society. Even straight couples don't don't show public displays of affection. So as long as you just don't do that, everything's going to be all right. Well, what do you want me to do? Right? I'm trans. That's just literally who I am. It's not me holding hands with someone. And by the way, you know, being gay is also not holding hands with someone. It's not kissing someone. It's also who you are. But I, I understand that people might conceptualize this as something that you could make less visual. What am I going to do? Like, am I going to um, wear a big cardboard box as I shuffle around town so that no one can see me? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And there's been nothing, there's been no comment that I've seen publicly about, oh yeah, no, it's, you know, we're going to um, make sure that people are safe. Uh, so, you know, yes, in lots of ways, Italy not qualifying has made that more straightforward for me personally, but it doesn't answer the question at all. I, I find this whole topic really, really difficult, honestly, because LGBTQ plus issues are, are obviously hugely important to me, but that's not the only reason that I'm furious that there's a World Cup in Qatar. There's, you know, human rights abuses in the way that these stadiums have been built. It's going to be uh, an extremely uncomfortable tournament to to watch and follow, let alone to cover um, I, the, the the juxtaposition of, of football with with what has happened to make that that tournament happen is is just deeply, deeply uncomfortable for me. And I haven't resolved all of how I think about what I'm going to do with work around that that tournament, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think the whole situation is just gross. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. It's it's something that we are wrestling with, working out how to cover it on, on the pod. Um, we, we sort of run out of time on this pod. It always feels sort of trite, Rishi, to say, look, if there's one thing people can do, because obviously there's lots of people can do, and we've, we've touched on those things. But if there's one thing people can do, uh, you know, who are listening to this, who just, you know, want football to be as inclusive as it possibly can be, like, what would what would you... I'll ask that to everybody as a, as a way to finish, mainly because I haven't thought of a better way of ending the pod. So if you follow a club or a national side, join their LGBT fan group as an ally, um, support that that the work of our groups. We've got 50 plus now and hopefully we'll get to 92. If your club doesn't have one, support that when it launches. But just inform yourself about the issues. You know, actually, ultimately, it's for people to to help. The way we tackle this is through education um, and also, yeah, come along to our things. Our, our, our things are fun as well. Rainbow Laces, Football versus Home Fabia. We do cool things. Um, so do come along and, and join us. I, I would also like encourage people to follow Dr. Nas Mohammed on all social media and sign his petition. So he's got an all-out petition that I think is called Love is Love. Um, I, I can link to it when we tweet out this pod or whatever. Um, sign the petition. It'd be great to get more signatures on it. I think um, both Rishi and Chris have, have already covered some some really important bases. Look, just be vocal. Be supportive in a in a vocal way when you hear things that aren't right challenge them um be someone who actually speaks their mind because you know like it's it's not easier to challenge things just because we are lgbtq plus in fact it's often harder because when you speak up against something you think to yourself is anyone going to back me up here am i going to be the the only person am i going to be even more isolated because of this um you know if you are in an environment and you know you think you're with people who who you think, oh, that's, you know, so-and-so is a good person. Like I've, I've never sort of had any problems with them. And then they say something that you think, well, hang on, that's not great. Say it to them, right? Because actually the person who they think of as a friend is going to be more willing to listen to them actually than, than a stranger saying it. So yeah, speak up, be vocal. All right. Um, thanks everybody. Was that worth doing, Baz? Yeah, I, I thought it was a very worthwhile endeavour. 
Excellent. Um, uh, look, Nikki, thank you so much for getting up incredibly early uh, in the United <laughs> States to do this pod. Pre- do you know what the worst part of doing this so early in the yeah. morning was? Um, this is like the most, we've gone from like real problems to the most first world of first world problems is that I'm in America and so the hotel room I'm in doesn't have tea. Uh. So I had to go out at 5.30 in the morning to find a tea because I was not going to do this without a tea, but I did find one. Proper tea. Builder's tea. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's crap tea because it's America, but it's tea. Oh, well, I'm <laughs> glad you got that. Fueled you through the pods. <laughs> Sorry, I've just made like a sweeping generalization about America. No, you're absolutely right. America this pod has an well. anti-US agenda. We've been very clear about it ever since we didn't mention that Christian Pulisic goal. It's good to carry it on. Um, Rishi, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Chris. Thanks, guys. And I'll see you at the Hackney Empire, chaps, on the 9th. Can you bring... 250 mates get the football team together (laughs) cheers Chris Uh, that'll do for today Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. this is The Guardian 